Well, good uh, afternoon, uh, uh, everyone. Welcome to this um, ODI uh, public meeting on uh, Sri Lanka's futures, future pathways. Um, let me welcome um, the audience here uh, who have come uh, to the ODI. Uh, let me also welcome um, the panel, of course, and let me also welcome the uh, online uh, audience as well. Um, and you can follow um, the, the, the meeting uh, online, of course, and you can also uh, follow it via uh, Twitter, hashtag um, ODI Global and ODI Trade. Um, this meeting will be uh, record recorded um, and it's uh, uh, and a recording will be pasted um, on the website online after the meeting. Um, this meeting uh, comes at a, um, a, a crucial time uh, for, uh, for Sri Lanka. It's an important uh, time to be discussing future pathways. Um, as we probably all aware and know, um, is that Sri Lanka has gone through some, some challenges uh, recently um, and it's gone for a preemptive uh, def debt default um, in April. And uh, it's currently uh, in discussions with a range of uh, creditors um, to um, uh, make sure that there, there are some uh, ways uh, forward for particularly the financing um, uh, situation. And it's got approval, uh, conditional approval from the IMF for a, for a particular program. And so the exam question um, for today is to really think through um, what are the, the possible steps that Sri Lanka can be taking to ensure that in the current context there is a, 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 an inclusive, uh, productive um, and sustainable uh, tran transformation. And let's also remember that, of course, Sri Lanka has come from a very um, uh, an excellent position uh, uh, many years ago with a with with a sort of enviable uh, human development indicators, at least in the region. It had uh, very high HDI um, indicators, um, and it was doing extremely well. We're talking about 30, 30 40 years ago, um, but perhaps more recently, um, there are some some challenges, uh, and, um, and and uh, and that needs to be addressed. Um, and in order to address those, um, we want to discuss this with a, with a panel, uh, an excellent panel that we've gathered here um, today, um, I must say. I'm very pleased that we, uh, we have uh, key experts um, on the topic of, uh, of future pathways for Sri Lanka, uh, both here in London, also online. Uh, and uh, let me just briefly um, sort of introduce uh, who we've got on the panel. Um, so, uh, first of all, to kick us off, uh, uh, will be um, uh, ODI Senior Research Associate uh, Ganesh Vignaraya, who sits on my left here, um, and uh, he, will, he will talk uh, us through how we got here in the, in the situation that we're in. Um, he is a collaborator, long-standing collaborator with, uh, with ODI, and I think our collaboration has gone, well, it's, it's been for about the last 20 years, I, I must say, and it's been very, very good, and he's been also recently um, quite a lot in the media around, uh, around uh, Sri Lanka. Um, secondly, we're very pleased to have um, uh, here with us uh, the former central bank governor of Sri Lanka, uh, Indriyat Komuswami. Uh, many thanks for, uh, for joining us. And he's, of course, uh, uh, it's really, um, related to the, to the current situation. And we're looking forward to, uh, to hearing from him on the current options going forward. Um, and then we're, um, uh, we're very pleased to, uh, uh, that we will be joined, joined by um, uh, Sonali uh, Derenjikali, who is um, working um, at the SOAS uh, South Asian Institute and also teaching uh, at, uh, at Columbia. Um, thank you for joining us online, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing from her 
on uh, particularly how um, the, uh, the position of the most vulnerable and the, and the poorest uh, can be safeguarded in the, in the current, uh, current context. We're then also joined, um, and we'll hear from, uh, I'm pleased to say, uh, from, by Vinod Hidramani, um, who is a director at the Hidramani Group, uh, a major uh, business in, uh, in Sri Lanka, and we wanted to hear from him also about the current uh, situation and particular opportunities that are out there, um, and that, uh, and also sort of on, on the resilience of business during the during the crisis. Um, and then uh, to finish off, um, we will discuss uh, more broadly relationships between the IMF and uh, uh, and Sri Lanka and other countries, and what we can learn from from this uh, in the case of, uh, of of Sri Lanka. Now, there, there are also a range of um, uh, well-known, high-profile uh, other individuals uh, who are online, um, and we're also very pleased to have uh, two, two board members uh, uh, of ODI online. So one is Shanta Devrajan, uh, who you can also see, uh, and, um, and the other is Dominic McVeigh, who is, um, is also a major investor in, uh, in Sri Lanka, and we're also looking forward to hearing from him. And of course, we've got uh, Bretton Roy uh, in the room, the managing director at ODI, who will be pleased to, uh, to, to, to come in and also uh, uh, highlight some, uh, some messages that are coming out of the discussions. And, um, sorry, Sherilyn, <laughs> I, I uh, have introduced you, my colleague, of course, next to me, uh, who will be hearing, uh, from whom we will be hearing um, uh, on, on the IMF. I didn't introduce the topic, I didn't introduce you, sorry. <laughs> um, Right. Okay. So let's um, um, let's now start uh, with uh, with some uh, introductory remarks um, uh, from the panel, uh, and we'll start with Ganesh. So, uh, so Ganesh, um, tell us a bit more about how we got in the situation that we're currently in. So, thank you, uh, Dirk Willem. It's a real pleasure to always be back at uh, ODI. I'm going to try to talk about uh, four things very briefly. A little bit about what the state of play in Sri Lanka is today. A little bit about these cause of the crisis and then talk a bit about um, essentially what is this issue of development reversal in Sri Lanka, which I think is a real risk, and then some lessons for others um, as they ponder to avoid doing a Sri Lanka, uh, which sadly has become a negative uh, storyline. So on the surface, the situation is much better than it was a few months ago during the dark days. In the chaotic dark days uh, at the height of the crisis, we had a badly managed economy, we had mass protests and social discontent. We had a president fleeing the country um, and we had three day petrol queues. Uh, today, we have some semblance of order. We have a staff level IMF agreement um, and a budget is due in a couple of weeks. We have tourism that's coming up and also remittances. We have an experienced politician, uh, President Ranil Vikramasinghe, uh, and social discontent uh, perhaps has become uh, somewhat less. But when you scratch below the surface, you see that there are lots of problems that remain. Um, you're probably going to have a minus 8 to 10% contraction of the economy this year. And that's, by the way, the central bank numbers and uh, that of the World Bank. Uh, inflation is 60% plus, which are really hurting the population. Uh, debt restructuring talks uh, appear to be uh, delayed and going further into 2023. And we have very dysfunctional politics uh, leading to muddled economic management. Now, in terms of where, what caused this unusual set of issues that have come in Sri Lanka, uh, there's a very popular explanation that all blame it on the external issues, right? It, it was the Russia-Ukraine conflict, COVID that hits this economy, 
And if it wasn't for this, you know, we would be uh, fine. Um, and uh, and the economy, by the way, had uh, twin deficits, a fiscal and a balance of payments deficit, which I'm sure Indrajit will talk about for many years, uh, which partly was a source problem. Um, but when you look more deeply, you see that these internal uh, issues uh, are perhaps more important than the external issues. And there are three that are probably quite popular. Uh, the first is we have a very bloated public sector and state-owned enterprises that have been a drain on the exchequer uh, and, and been a major problem. Then there is this risk of a Chinese debt trap uh, from really uh, excessive borrowing for low return uh, infrastructure projects, the Hambantota port and the Matale airport being uh, obvious examples, meaning that they are long gestation uh, period projects and have consumed uh, lots of uh, resources and high interest rates have to be paid. And then there's been poor economic decision making, um, the so-called homegrown solutions to dealing with the problems that we had um, linked to a populist inward oriented regime. And some people have talked about this as, as weak familytocracy governance. Um, so internal issues probably are more important than the external, although the two interplay. Um, the worry for me is that Sri Lanka faces this uh, serious development reversal problem. Um, and as Dirk Willem said, this was a country with enviable social indicators for its per capita income as early as the 1970s. Um, but we today have this set of issues. Uh, per capita income is probably going to fall this year to $3,500, uh, down from $4,077 in 2017. Uh, there's three quarters of a million additional poor that have come in Sri Lanka, partly through this crisis and the COVID impact. Uh, we have increase in malnutrition and hunger. The UN talks about six million extra poor uh, who are facing food insecurity conditions. And the saddest thing for me is a million Sri Lankans migrating. That's the passport office that are talking about people leaving. And it's the skilled and the young who are leaving. Uh, and that's really sad. Um, now, I worry about the development reversal problem um, becoming a reality with dysfunctional politics and a gloomy world economy. Uh, very briefly, I'm just going to list some lessons um, that are needed and I'll finish. Uh, the lessons are really that you need to have a very strong macroeconomic and financial regulatory structure resting on the central bank. And there is a new central bank act, which we hope will get passed very soon, that will make the central bank a bit more independent. Secondly, we have to really have better crisis management capabilities. We had multiple committees during this crisis um, and it led to very poor decision making. We need a US style council of economic advisors. And then the biggest lesson for me was not going to the IMF early enough uh, when there was the early warnings of a crisis instead of which we wanted to pursue these homegrown solutions, which were import controls, uh, printing money, um, <clears throat> bilateral swap arrangements with regional e economies, and lots of financial subsidies. And this combination has not really been that useful. Um, and after defaulting, when you go to the IMF, uh, it means the conditions are much tougher. And you also have this problem of debt restructuring, which I'm sure the panel will talk about. And you have China and private creditors who are being very, very difficult. And it default means you tarnish the national brand for years to come. Doesn't matter what you do to avoid this. And the last point is really we need uh, strong safety nets to secure the poor. So in conclusion, I am cautiously optimistic about Sri Lanka. Having said all the things I said, 
mainly because it's a small country. This is not even one city in India. This is, you know, uh, 20 million people, right? So it's easy to turn around such a place if it's well located and has good human capital. Um, so it, the country has a sporting chance of success, but the risks of dysfunctional politics and a muddling along economic strategy and a worsening world economy uh, are quite serious risks. And if these risks materialize, we could have a lost decade for young Sri Lankans for the foreseeable future, which is very worrying. And I think these policy lessons I spelled out are very important for others who want to avoid doing a Sri Lanka. Thanks, Dirk Widow. Well, thank you very much, um, Ganesh, for, uh, for this these introductory remarks and uh, a stark reminder of the, of the major challenges that, that Sri Lanka is facing at the moment, uh, the macroeconomic challenges, um, but also saying that you're cautiously optimistic, um, uh, subject to risk and the risk of, uh, of, uh, of reversal of, of the major development gains that have, have been had over the last few, uh, few decades, um, and also pointing um, uh, the problems to both external shocks uh, and many, many countries will face that uh, in, in, in the world, um, Ukraine, Russia, crisis, um, COVID and, uh, and a range of other uh, issues now, uh, but also internal issues and, um, and that inter interplay will be, will be very important. So let's uh, turn out to, um, to Indrid um, and uh, we already heard from Ganesh on going to the IMF, going to the IMF earlier, uh, he suggested. Um, but it's not done yet, is it? Uh, so there's not a, de uh, a done deal yet for, um, with IMF. Um, so the question is a bit sort of what needs to be done? Uh, what, what is this current situation? What needs to be done to, to get this deal uh, done with IMF? Um, and what ki kind of deal would be beneficial for, for Sri Lanka uh, in order to uh, promote this sort of inclusive economic uh, transformation? Th thank you, Dirk Willem. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me, and it's good to be here. Um, let me say that uh, the delay in going to the IMF um, has complicated and probably made the burden of adjustment far greater than it would otherwise have been. Uh, it's interesting that a country like Bangladesh, with I think about $40 billion worth of reserves, is already talking to the IMF, whereas when on the 12th of April, when we declared a debt standstill, our usable reserves were down to less than 20 million. 20 million. So um, that, that's the different kind of approaches that um, we're having. But let me say this, uh, some optimism in the sense that as far as the, I mean, for us to resolve this problem, uh, we need, because, you know, we're having dollar liquidity and we're having rupee liquidity, both. Uh, and to get over these problems, we need to unlock um, the opportunities that a fund program will create for us in terms of attracting money into the country. And we also have to uh, have implement a fund program with a strong uh, revenue enhancement to stop the central bank printing money to finance the budget. Because that, that's, we have kind of got a kind of a low level equilibrium uh, by using strong import controls, the exchange rate, interest rates, etc., to curb imports and to match it with exports and remittances and a small amounts of other capital flows. Um, and, and, but the trade-off is that the economy is shrinking by 8 to 10%, as uh, Ganeshan was saying. So clearly, you, you can't sustain that. The social and political implications of having 8 10% contraction in the economy, are, it's only a matter of time that they become unmanageable. So that has to be resolved, and we have to get money in. 
uh, and we have to stop the central bank from keeping printing money if we are to eventually get on top of inflation and and also to reduce the pressure on the balance of payments. So the IMF program is critical uh, to the task at hand, but you can't get the IMF program until the IMF is confident that Sri Lanka is back on a trajectory where its debt will be sustainable. But you don't have to have a completed IMF uh, uh, debt restructuring or debt relief program to be able uh, to put the program up to the executive board for approval. What you require is for the official creditors to give assurances of sufficient financing to get Sri Lanka back on track. And for private creditors to make an announcement that they are negotiating in good faith with Sri Lanka. So you don't have to have a done deal as far as the debt restructuring is concerned. You need assurance of the financing from official creditors and uh, confirmation from the private creditors that negotiations are underway uh, in good faith. So that is a lower bar than you know actually having to do that. So how are we doing? Uh, because you have to get the debt into order before you can have a program put up to the uh, executive board. Let me start with the debt um, and what little I know of it. Clearly, um, and the governor has said there's radio silence, so we don't really know exactly what's going on. Uh, but we do know, I think, um, that the government uh, is making progress uh, with uh, the majority of the bilateral creditors. The Paris Club, for instance, I think they've made progress with them in terms of getting uh, assurances uh, of financing. Uh, India, you know, basically on the bilateral side, there are three creditors of significance, and that is China, India, and Japan. Japan is a member of the Paris Club, and if Paris Club is able to give assurance of financing, then Japan would be looked after. Um, India is not, and, and China are clearly not members of the Paris Club, but it seems India is moving towards some kind of uh, announcement of, of assurance of uh, uh, financing though it's not a done deal, but there are questions they've been asking, the amount of engagement that's taking place. Hopefully, India will get there. Uh, China, again, a, a degree of encouragement, but much further away uh, in terms of understanding where they are. Um, for, for I think for some time, China did not engage. Uh, they, they engaged about three, four months ago. The China Development Bank and Exim Bank engaged a few months ago. They have, and then things went quiet. But again, in the last uh, week, 10 days, they've attended the briefings for the bilateral creditors. Uh, they've asked some questions. Um, so again, the, the, a, a conversation has started, but one doesn't know where it will go. But hopefully, hopefully, um, we can get assurances of financing from the bilateral creditors by the end of this month. Uh, uh, but that's a hope still, right? It's um, I, for, with quite a lot of the creditors, one could almost say an expectation, but it, no, it's all hope to get it from everybody. Uh, but there are some other options available, uh, and that those are also being explored by the, by the um, government of Sri Lanka to go ahead if they have difficulty in getting uh, assurance of the financing from all bilateral creditors. On the, on the private creditor side, uh, I understand things are going okay. Uh, actually, because all the, I mean, they don't have to do a deal, right? That they have to say, we are negotiating in good faith. And so far, I understand uh, the negotiations between Sri Lanka's debt advisors uh, and the, the uh, advisors the, for the 
for the private creditors as well as the creditor committee, I think those have uh, started encouraging me. Uh, on, you know, again, on both these fronts, there's a ground to be covered still, but uh, there is some grounds for, uh, for, for uh, optimism is too long, for, for some expectation that we may actually get there. And the, and the target is to get there by the end of the year, to get the um, reassurance of financing and the, uh, uh, the confirmation of negotiation in good faith from the private creditors by, say, end of November, and then to have the executive board of the IMF look at the Sri Lankan program by sort of the third week of, of December. So that in the most optimistic scenario, Sri Lanka could have an extended fund facility by the end of the year. As I said, number of things have to fall into place. Um, there is, I think, scope for hope. Uh, but uh, beyond that, it's still, I think, as I say, a question. But let me say one other thing uh, very quickly. And that is, you know, for stabilizing the economy, the EFF and the uh, debt treatment are critical. Uh, so that they, um, uh, you know, I, really Sri Lanka's regression, it was second to Japan in Asia on most indicators at the time of independence. We've regressed and macroeconomic stress, in my view, has been the main causal factor. There have been social, political, lots of other things, but macroeconomic stress, consistent macroeconomic stress, 16 IMF programs. Uh, that has been the main reason why we've, we've regressed, uh, in my view. So to get that right, you have to stabilize the economy, get the macro things right. And the IMF program has a number of elements. We can talk about that later if you want to, which uh, seek to do, seeks to do that. And you have to do that in a way that you make sure that the social protection is there. Um, because remember, this stabilization program that is being implemented by the government is happening at a time when the economy is contracting. By its Normally, you have an overheating economy and you go to the IMF. Here, the economy is contracting by 8 to 10%, and you're imposing a stabilization program and, and, and a squeezing a compression of domestic absorption. And, the, and on top of that, I think it's also important to remember that Sri Lanka has been very, very poor. It's been a classic soft state. It has not been able to get structural reforms done. On these 16 IMF programs, often we did reasonably well on the stabilization programs, at least until an election came, then everything fell apart. But, but on the structural side, we hardly ever got anything done at all. So that, that has to change. As I said, we are doing stabilization when a time, at a time the economy is contracting by 8 to 10%, unless we get the structural reforms implemented this time. It's going to be seriously, a serious, serious problem. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Indrid, for some very uh, important information here. <laughs> um, uh, consistent macroeconomic stress, 16 IMF programs, uh, challenges to move uh, beyond stabilization, to think about structural uh, reforms, but also uh, scope for hope, as you said, um, at least for um, uh, in the coming uh, month or two to, um, to get the financing agreed. And I think there is also probably uh, that something that other countries may look at as well, um, that that other countries that are uh, poorer countries, low-income countries, uh, middle-income countries that are uh, perhaps in debt distress uh, may have uh, some bilateral creditors uh, uh, from the Paris Club, but also going beyond. 
um, and uh, and bond holders, so prior bond holders. So there are some a range of issues there, um, and you pinpointed some of the uh, the challenges that that may lie ahead, but also that there's uh, scope for hope. One other thing that you mentioned was that um, of course the IMF needs to have assurances from the other financiers uh, to get the IMF uh, uh, um, program approved. It also needs to be confident about the trajectory that it's going uh, in. And there, of course, not there's not one single trajectory. There are there, there are policy choices to be made, um, and uh, we want to highlight at least two aspects of that. And first, we'd like to turn out to Sonali. Uh, to think a bit more about sort of the role of um, of the poorest uh, and more, more, most vulnerable segments in the population. So how can how can they be sort of uh, safeguarded um, and they should be safeguarded in the in the current context? Um, I mean, these are very challenging uh, um, situations. The, we heard about a number of uh, or, or the inflation. Um, that is really huge. That the bank should be stop stop uh, should stop printing money. Um, we, um, we we also heard about a twin deficit. So in this context, how can the uh, how are the poorest affected, and how can um, they uh, be safeguarded? Over to you, Sonali. Thank you, thank you, Dirk, and thank you for inviting me on this panel. Um, yes, I will um, lay out uh, briefly the kind of status of uh, what how this economic collapse in uh, Sri Lanka has affected poverty and the human costs of this uh, crisis. I mean. You know, it's kind of understatement to say that the crisis has had a catastrophic effect on the poor in Sri Lanka and on um, the less well-off in society. So the costs in terms of uh, income poverty, in terms of human development, have been it's very, very great, very serious. So if you look at uh, take income poverty, for instance, and the latest data, which is from the World Bank in October this year, shows that if you use a $3.65 purchasing power parity uh, poverty line, Poverty rates have actually doubled in the country, gone up from 13.1% last year to almost 26% this year, 2022. That's a huge, huge increase in absolute poverty. Um, in comparison, say the year of COVID, the rate of poverty went up by 1%. So this is 13% increase uh, compared to 1% increase. So it's a massive increase in absolute poverty. Uh, now, much of this poverty is rural, as Sri Lankan poverty has always been rural, but there's also been significantly an increase in urban poverty uh, in this last one year. So it's a tripling of urban poverty. Um, again, poverty is regionally, um, there are you know, divergences within the country and um, the war affected, the civil war that ended in 2009, the war affected regions continue to have extremely high uh, poverty rates, Malethi, Bukilinochi, absolute poverty around 60%, 57% of the population in this area living in absolute poverty. So very, very grave consequences of this collapse on the most vulnerable uh, sections of uh, society. Now, as Danish and both Indigit have kind of highlighted, you know, reasons for this are quite straightforward. One is contraction of output. So the industrial sector is expected to contract by, I think, 11%, service sector 9%, agriculture, 9% and so on. So all of this, you know, and this is the formal sector mostly, has led to an, a loss of a job loss and therefore an earnings loss for households. Now, the job loss, they say in the formal sector is about, say, half a million jobs have been lost. In addition to that, Sri Lanka, of course, has a very a large informal economy and about two thirds of employment come from the informal sector. 
So again, casualization, increased casualization of work, more erratic uh, work and more lower earnings and so on is going to further push poverty rates you know, higher, I would say. Um, and of course, another reason for the increased poverty has been inflation and um, the cost of consumption for the poor has risen much more significantly also than the non-poor, given the dependence of you know, how, how much the poor spend on food and so on. So all of this has had a very, very serious effect on human development as well. So that's income poverty. If you look at human development, nutrition has been very seriously affected. And there is, you know, survey data here and there from Sri Lanka, which show that nearly 7 million people, you know, report that they consume inadequate diets. Um, and this is very, very serious in terms of children's uh, nutrition. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of children who don't turn up to school because they're hungry. Um, and, um, you know, there's also UNICEF reporting data on uh, wasting and undernutrition and wasting, which is, again, has long-term implications. So the problem with this poverty scenario in Sri Lanka is that it could lead to long-term implications, especially with intergenerationally. Wasting affects cognitive development in the long-term, affects productivity, affects economic growth and so on. So Ganeshan mentioned, you know, our exodus of skilled labor, which is going to be, again, serious constraint on growth. And also looking forward, we have to worry about how cognitive development, productivity, nutrition. So human capital is going to affect, be affected in the future. Again, the same thing, we've been serious disruptions to education apart from uh, COVID. This year, schools were closed because of the lack of fuel, lack of petrol and so on. So again, huge disruptions in children's education having long-term uh, effects. Now, together with this increase in poverty, there's also has been an increase in uh, inequality. The Gini has also, Sri Lanka, has always been a relatively high inequality economy. And there is evidence of an increased uh, income inequality. And part of this inequality is a problem because there are political economy implications for this. And the reason we are in this crisis, we could argue, is partly due to the patterns of inequality that are present in the country. Now, what to do about it? There's a lot of discussion both in Sri Lanka, of course, amongst you know, policymakers and also in civil society about there's, you know, worry uh, as to how, how the IMF program is going to infl uh, inflict austerity, even though the current situation is austerity. I mean, there's extreme austerity happening right now. So there's been a lot of talk about cash transfers and how difficult it is going to be. I mean, Sri Lanka has uh, cash transfer programs which are at the moment, they're extremely inadequate, you know, woefully inadequate. There's three main programs, some of the uh, disability allowance and so on. And the expenditure on these programs, the one thing has been falling over the last uh, 15 years or so. These programs are targeted very poorly. You know, I think the poorest quintile, only about 59 or 60% of the poorest quintile receives any cash transfers. They're also, um, they're not very generous at all. So in terms of their consumption, I think the poor, you know, it only accounts for about 12% of total consumption and so on. So again, coverage is small, they're not generous. And so how in this situation of fiscal contraction, how are we going to safeguard these groups? And in terms of overall human development expenditure, Sri Lanka has also been a low spend economy. You know, we've had in the past, as all the speakers mentioned, very high levels of human development. We've been exemplary in lots of ways. 
But over the last couple of decades, expenditure on this has been low, you know, way before below Nepal on education, health, and so on. So we've been a low spend economy, and now you know there's going to be further contraction, possibly. Or even if you ring fence this, it's not enough to push or to protect these vulnerable um, segments of the population. So I think, yeah, I mean, these are all questions, really. How are these, you know, stabilization policies then? You know, how are we going to try and maximize transfers? What's going to be the overall fiscal effect of these stabilization policies in terms of taxation, you know, direct, indirect? What's going to be the overall effect of these policies? And we always say, you know, the weight should be borne by the broader shoulders, but how exactly is this going to be brought about? You know, we also have a new category of the working poor, even in the formal sector, garments, apparel, and so on. There are, you know, lots of stories of soup kitchens and, you know, or equivalent of. Um, and so it's an entire, you know, huge swathe of the population who are in economic difficulty. Um, so I think, you know, I'm kind of probably less optimistic in a way um, because I think we should really, this is a chance to look at the deeper structural reasons, the political economy reasons as to why we kind of ended up in this situation, a very highly rent-seeking economy, uh, you know, industrial sector, which is totally inward looking. And so we've taken a low road to development. And I think we could think further if we don't uh, kind of really take stock at this point in time. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, um, Sonali. That's, that's been really, uh, really interesting to hear your comments. Um, of course, that you're slightly less optimistic, uh, and particularly for sort of the longer-term factors that you've uh, that you've mentioned. But it's also um, yeah, a stark reminder of um, of the plight of the poorest um, in a crisis like this. Um, that inflation is is hurting the poorest. Um, a contraction in output that, that everybody seems to. Um, to agree on that, that's uh, that's uh, well, up to eight percent or nine percent of, uh, of GDP, which is huge, um, uh, and uh, that there's an increase in inequality uh, happening as well, and that there are long-term um, uh, costs of this as well, um, which is a uh, which is a challenge. Um, you've said that also there may need to be more attention to um, social spending. Um, and I think that tallies also with, with Ganesh's point around uh, social safety nets. Um, uh, but also that targeting needs to improve as well. Uh, and we may want to discuss that as well um, uh, a bit more. Um, but I suppose I also want to highlight one other, uh, we also want to highlight one other aspect of, um, uh, of the, um, the current uh, situation, which is the private sector uh, side of, uh, of, of, um, of where we are. And, and of course, ideally the two um, would work uh, work together. Um, that there is a sort of a, a promising, uh, thriving private sector um, that, um, that 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 creates jobs um, that that leads to a transformative uh, economy, which then uh, sets us off on the long term trajectory. Um, so, question is really a bit uh, to you, Finald, Is is um, from the private sector's perspective, how resilient has the, the private sector been? Uh, in, in the current crisis, and what are some of the opportunities currently um, uh, as well? So uh, we've heard that there, were, there was a lot of promising statistics coming out of, of Sri Lanka previously. Um, what are the opportunities now that uh, in, in the current current situation? Hope to you, Vinod. Thank you. Thank you, Dirk. Uh, yeah, before I, I start on, on the questions from Dirk, you know, I, I do appreciate you know Sonali's, uh, you know mentioning you know. Kind of the most vulnerable in the country and we as an organization as we in a, we as an industry have really tried at our utmost to make sure that 
we are able to look after our associates you know, in, in the best possible way, despite these trying circumstances. So I want to make that, you know, we, we employ about 25,000 people in Sri Lanka. So, you know, it's, it was important that they were okay before the business ran. So, so I want to make that clear. But, um, you know, we, before this current crisis, uh, we had gone through COVID. Uh, and we as the business community had, had, had learned a lot through COVID uh, in, in how to operate through trying circumstances. And I think this current situation, uh, you know, uh, we, 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 we were, you know, the, the main thing was fuel, right? The, the main thing was energy and fuel, uh, that, that there was a lack of, of this. But, you know, working with the government and the authorities, we were able to make sure, particularly the export side, was able to operate without much disruption. Uh, to give you kind of uh, some positive spin, you know, the, the apparel industry has record numbers for the first nine months of the year, and we'll probably end up uh, close to tw 2019, 2020 numbers. So despite, you know, all the doom and gloom, you know, our, our industry stands bright. Uh, even tea, uh, you know, the auction continued to operate, and we've got some of the highest tea prices that we've ever had uh, th throughout the last few years. Uh, the IT industry, uh, you know, we have HCL coming in from India, taking 3,000 seats, and we have LS, LSE and uh, even HSBC growing their, growing their businesses there. Um, logistics, you know, we have, we have a company, Expo Lanka, that became a billion-dollar company last year, and we have a lot of potential with the region of other investors coming in into the country. Um, tourism, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've all seen the pictures of Sri Lanka, uh, you know, the, the potential is enormous in various sectors of tourism, you know, from 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 kind of the entry level right through to luxury tourism. And, and, and you know, the hotels have remained open. People are visiting uh, despite despite all the negativity. And we're, we're hoping to see a big uptrend. A lot of our colleagues are here this week for WTM and, and, and we're promoting Sri Lanka uh, and, and making sure that happens. Um, you know, the, the other thing is, uh, Indrajit will know our basket of exports hasn't changed in the last 20 years. You know, with the, with the anti-China and, and the movement into India, uh, we've been advocating that Sri Lanka becomes part of that global supply chain, uh, works, uh, you know, to supply parts for the iPhone that's going to be made in India. Uh, and we as, an, we as a company are, are looking at that as well. You know, we've invested in India and looking how, you know, most of the, one of the things I learned the other day is all the remote controls for Indian TVs are made in China. So, you know, why can't Sri Lanka make the remote controls for Indian TV? So, you know, putting that stuff out there. Um, beyond the IMF agreement, you know, what, what is required uh, to, to make Sri Lanka a, a place to invest? I think, you know, uh, going up on the ease of doing business, I, I think we've, we're quite low on that. So I think the government themselves also realize we need to make it easy to do business in Sri Lanka. Um, again, approvals, looking at how we can get businesses started much faster. Uh, a focus on FTAs. I, I think, you know, we, we have the Singapore one, but India, uh, again, with the UK, I know India is trying to get one. We, we, we're, we're small enough uh, to be able to work quite flexibly on the FTAs. Um, that's, that's really about it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, so you, um, you highlighted the challenges related to fuel um, uh, at, at the start, um, and but also pointed to, um, to some... Uh, sectors that are doing really well and some of the numbers um, um, that, are, that, are, that are coming out. So the, the garment sector, for example, and um, um, the tea sector and IT sector as well. Um, I was at the um, High Commission uh, on Friday, uh, the Sri Lankan High Commission, and they had an IT forum. 
um, and uh, highlighting some of the uh, IT companies uh, that that were investing in uh, in, in Sri Lanka, and of course um, noting the current challenges, but also thinking about a long-term plan, particularly the, the Sri Lanka's long-term plan to uh, for a digital economy. Um, but what is also very important, of course, is that Sri Lanka uh, does um, uh, play its, uh, its role in the global value chain, the global supply chain, and uh, and we've been highlighting at ODI some of those um, those aspects, uh, particularly in the garment sector uh, as well, um, and uh, uh, thinking that uh, sort of that Sri Lanka has upgraded. Uh, um, and also started actually investing in other countries, including in Ethiopia and uh, and Kenya, for example. Um, and um, and so there are some there were some promising um, promising uh, notable facts there, um, and that we can build on as well. So um, some some positive news as well. Um, so let's now turn to um, uh, to Sherlyn Sherlyn Raga. Um, so she's a research fellow at. Uh, Already are working around uh, also debt issues, financing issues, and has also looked into sort of IMF programs uh, uh, more generally and shock facilities more generally. So what we call shock facilities is what what can donor agencies, what can uh, the twenty countries do to uh, uh, to perhaps support countries uh, uh, in the, in their efforts um, to um, uh, to sort of overcome crises, and and perhaps in that context, could you outline a little bit sort of what you what you've been finding uh, around. Uh, countries seeking um, uh, sort of their help from from IMF programs. Uh, are there any lessons from other countries? And perhaps you also want to talk a bit about sort of what are the lessons from from uh, Sri Lanka for for the rest of the world in going to the IMF. I think we already heard one from from Indreed earlier that uh, going to the IMF earlier is better than than later. Um, but but over to you. Uh, thanks, Dirk, for that question. So I think uh, before I go to the details, it's uh, useful for us to step back a little on like identifying the key channels through which the IMF financing can actually help the countries in need of financing or in that distress. So first, of course, is that the, the IMF financing directly influences the macroeconomic variables. It, it directly increases the foreign reserves, help ease the balance of payment of pressures, exchange rate pressure, and we hopefully that would induce growth. The other channel is, of course, the catalytic effect. So if the investors perceive that the IMF financing will help the country make its debt sustainable, then it will help unblock other official or private financial flows into the country. Of course, the third one is on resilience building. To what extent the IMF financing is um, helping induce uh, fiscal discipline or also um, put in place positive reform that are all important to build the resilience of countries against future shocks. So there is a vast uh, evidence um, and also documentation on how the IMF is influencing the growth of many countries that receive it at its IMF financing. And the conclusion is inconclusive, unfortunately, depending on the time period, country, and even the IMF conditionalities that is being observed. If you look at the performance of the IMF financing on growth, on uh, maybe a performance between 70s to 90s, you see that the impact is on tend to be negative, also on growth and social indicators. And I think the wide criticism has happened during the Asian financial crisis when the IMF financing, its um, conditionalities actually led to capital outflows from the region 
depreciation and exacerbated you know the, the exchange rate depreciation that actually contracted demand and hurt the domestic activity so in that sense that's negative but if you look at the more recent evidence covering up to 2000 and you know some new econometric techniques to address the selection bias you see that the imf financing that address short-term uh, balance of payment needs short-term policy slippages and those that address short-term external shock, they actually have uh, um, about 1% to 2% growth impact. And the impact is strongest if the country recipient has an immediate balance of payment needs and large at that, and also if the instrument is concessional. So all these elements have to play. Like, you know, if you consider what are the type of concessional that you're getting from these global financial um, institutions. So um, now there's less um, country case studies that document the successful um, uh, implementation of IMF that led to sustained growth. But what we saw, for example, for some, for example, from uh, Jamaica, Cyprus, Serbia, when they um, experienced large fiscal imbalances, growing debt, um, financial crisis, and they went to IMF, they were able to sustain um, years of growth after that IMF program. And you see that the common success factor, of course, is uh, fiscal consolidation, uh, reduction, large reduction in efficient tax system, uh, subsidy support, and also some... Um, um, reforms in the banking sector, those public, uh, those um, banks that are too big to fail have been reformed. But I think one important element that I've seen in some of the country case studies is there's an ear, there was there were earmark um, pro programming um, that increased or even improved the social protection programs. And I think that's critical in increasing the political ownership of the IMF program that helped you know, the programs achieve its um, intended outcome and that's growth. So I think that that inclusiveness of the program is critical based on other evidence. Now, I think if you look at the regional level, the best one of the best examples, I think, were the Southeast Asian countries after they uh, survived the Asian financial crisis. These countries uh, took a regional effort to develop their local currency bond market increase the bank's capital, and also um, build their mini IMF in the region, the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization, which serve as a first line of credit line defense. Even before these countries can go to the IMF, they have this option in the region, and that's sort of strengthened their positioning in terms of credit rating. Um, so um, I think the evolution of the growth impact of the IMF financing over the years also reflect the evolution of the institution itself. So the IMF, since the Asian financial crisis, learned to relax some of its um, fiscal targets. And also after the global financial crisis, when there's very volatile capital flows worldwide, it sort of back on its uh, very stringent stand on capital controls. And now that we are facing the COVID-19, they have this rapid financing facilities with less uh, conditionalities. They also have launched some resilience uh, fund that has a long or medium term orientation. But uh, so those are what the countries have done. And this is how the IMF has evolved. But of course, there are persistent issues over the years that always come up when there's some um, shocks like this for the IMF part, for instance, like, of course, the persistent issue of is the size. When the global financial crisis hit in 2009, the IMF increases its special drawing rights by almost tenfold. Now they just doubled it for the pandemic. And you'll imagine, like, what is the IMF release doing? Is it responding according to the uh, size of the shock, considering that COVID-19 
um, makes deeper contraction and long-term scarring effects than the financial crisis. The second is on the quota-based um, allocation. You see that many low-income countries were able to access just the rapid financing because it has less con conditionalities. And the others are very limited to upper and middle income countries. This is what we found with the paper we're doing with Gates Foundation, that the very limited high income countries that were able to access the IMF, it's about they access about 3.8% of their GDP. The lower middle income countries, 0.6% of GDP. That's the that's the amount. And it's all it's all tied into how the IMF lend. So there has to be some thinking around that. And of course, uh, the conditionalities. Uh, unfortunately, 60% of the IMF financing from 20 to 21 has ex-ante requirements. It means that before you can access the facility, you have to have a strong economic fundamentals. And that's impossible for countries with pre-existing vulnerabilities, high debt even prior to the pandemic. So that's sort of these issues. So we've learned like, yeah, it, it leads us naturally to the next question on, what the IMF can do to, to address the shocks, multiple shocks, not only for Sri Lanka, but for others who are probably queuing to apply to the common that frame, uh, the common framework. I, I can discuss later, but maybe just, uh, you know, an overview, just three points. Of course, it's lending, it's lending framework. There has to be a thinking when the shock is global in nature, systemic, and outside the influence of policy, domestic policy, the support should be automatic. And that has to be like structured because this is not the shock, the only shock we've experienced in the past. Shock becomes, we're, we're living in a shock-prone world now and they, everyone has to act fast, I think, especially in their position, global positioning. And of course, they're in the debt restructuring. It's almost, uh, Ganesh and Indrajit here already mentioned, it's almost a chicken-egg situation where the IMF needs a creditor assurances. And then the creditors are waiting whether the IMF would likely give the countries this financing. And in between, you, you experience repeated credit creating downgrades. So how do you deal with the situation? There has to be some thinking around that. And I think this is important in terms of achieving the effectiveness of the financing from what we've learned from the evidence and also when we work with the IDRC on Global South uh, countries during the pandemic, Ganesh was also involved, is that um, there's untapped synergies between global donors and national policymakers. Um, the national policymakers, the countries that where we work with, they recognize that there are international institutions that have comparative advantage, can finance balance of payment, can finance infrastructure, climate, humanitarian action, but there are also special. There is also comparative advantage from the national policymakers, and that is, for example, targeting the most vulnerable uh, members of the society. That will make the financing more inclusive. And that also increases, you know, the political ownership of the program that all will contribute to the success of the financing. So let me stop there. Oh, thank, thank you very much, Sherilyn, and uh, for this, this fantastic overview. Also, this rundown for, for, for about the IMF programs mm -hmm. and uh, and also over time. And uh, I remember uh, being here um, at ODI um, several years ago, like in the, the 2000s, that we were talking about IMF and thinking, is there still a role for the IMF? Um, and how quickly things have moved on, of course. Uh, then there was a financial crisis, and now we've got this, and, and there's now countries are queuing up uh, for, the, for the IMF uh, and, we, and also uh, uh, urging us to, uh, 
uh, to act fast uh, as well, which is really, uh, really important. Right, okay, so I think we've got some, uh, had some very interesting uh, introductory remarks by, uh, by all the, um, the panelists. And uh, let me just highlight three, I think, issues that are, um, that are being discussed. Um, so first of all, I think, is how do we get he got here in this, in this situation? And um, yes, there are these external shocks, uh, and all countries are facing the, the, these, these shocks um, that are currently uh, uh, sort of going through all the economies and uh, the UK, including. Um, and uh, that is definitely true. Um, but there is also um, a highlight on the importance of the internal issues as well. And I think that is, we can't see that um, uh, separate from, from, from the, situ the situation that, that Sri Lanka is currently in. Uh, the IMF has had 16 uh, programs with, with, with Sri Lanka, so um, uh, something uh, will need to be different uh, uh, in the coming years um, in order for this IMF program to lead to a sustainable, uh, inclusive and, and, and productive uh, transformation. Um, and uh, partly part of the answer could be in the in the in the shock facilities and what they offer a country, what what space they offer. Uh, but I, I'm sure that part of the answer is also about um, uh, the type of um, uh, policies. Um, uh, secondly, I think what's being highlighted is uh, around the um, um, perhaps the geopolitics of this as well as we need to get things right. We need to get this deal done uh, for 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 Sri Lanka. And, uh, and there are a range of actors uh, and, uh, that are involved. Some are faster than, than others. And, um, and so, um, uh, so uh, maybe Japan might be faster, um, but, uh, but maybe uh, China is not as fast uh, at the moment. But it, uh, the debate is, is, is ongoing. But of course, that, that there are perhaps geopolitical issues that could be um, further, further discussed in the, in the panel. Um, and then finally, I think, is what is the plan going forward? Um, so, um, and both on the economic and the social side, uh, and perhaps also the, um, the, the, the sustainable side as well, the, the prospects for renewable energy projects, for example, um, uh, as, as well. So, Binot uh, was mentioning um, the importance of um, uh, doing business. So there are things that need to be improved there, um, uh, but there are, there are projects that work but more things need to be done. Sonali was highlighting that there needs to be better targeting of the, safety, the social safety nets. So um, that is something that we, uh, we may also want to um, uh, uh, discuss a bit more. Um, perhaps it's now time to, uh, to bring you in, uh, the audience, bring in the online audience in as well. Uh, and, uh, and also um, I might be able uh, to, uh, to receive questions online. Um, perhaps Lucy, you can uh, send them through if there are uh, questions that are um, that are coming online as well. Um, I know that um, that we've got uh, Shanta online, um, and um, uh, and I don't know whether we want to bring him now uh, at this stage. Um, can you hear Shanta? Maybe you want to. Would you like to come in at this uh, at this at this juncture? Sure. Uh, if 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 you can hear me and you can see me. Volume a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, we can hear you, but we're increasing the volume at the moment. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Um, thanks very much. Uh, and, and Dirk, uh, thanks very much for organizing this. I think this is a very important session. Uh, you know, I have to confess, I 
agree with what all the other panelists have said, including some of whom uh, uh, I work with quite closely, and uh, we've developed some of these policy prescriptions uh, jointly. Uh, but I, I want to take a step back because I, I think everybody has made some sensible proposals, Ganesh, Indrajit, Sonali, and, and so on, uh, about what Sri Lanka needs to do to get out of this, uh, get out of the situation. They're, they're very sensible. The question is, are they going to do it? Because let's let's be realistic. Economic policy in Sri Lanka for the last seventy years has been systematically subject to political capture to disempowerment of poor people, as Sonali mentioned, and very importantly, undermining the public's ability to hold government to account. So the, the whole, this is the reason why we've had 16 IMF programs, is that the, the government is not accountable to its own people. So let me just suggest five uh, areas and this is going to be controversial, I, I warn you in advance, that where the changes that need to be made are ones in the direction of increasing accountability, reducing political capture, and empowering poor people. And I think this is what the Aragalaya movement was, was trying to achieve. And the first, maybe the most controversial, is trade liberalization. See, Sri Lanka, you know, despite these high human development indicators for the first 30 years of since independence had very low growth. And then in the late 1970s, 78, 79, they liberalized trade. They had a huge trade liberalization and economic growth took off. And the important point about that and, and, and entrepreneurs like Vinod and his colleagues actually managed to get the economy booming. All this apparel industry and the tea industry took off and so on. Uh, the reason for this is not just that now they were getting cheap inputs, imported inputs because of trade liberalization, but that the producers were now accountable to world prices rather than to the government. When you had trade protection, it was the government that decided what prices you faced. And then the government would use that selectively rather than actually what was competitive. So I think we should push further on trade liberalization despite the crisis here as a way of unleashing the potential of this, uh, of this economy, which has already been demonstrated. The second are these, the whole host of subsidies, energy subsidies, fuel subsidies, electricity subsidies that pervade the country and cost a lot of money, but also actually make the electric utilities accountable to the government rather than to the consumer. So they can cut off electricity and public can't do anything about it. So by contrast, if you get rid of electricity subsidies so that the consumer pays the electric utility, then the electric utility better deliver the service, otherwise they're out of business. And the other thing is, of course, if you save this money, and these, tar these subsidies go mainly to the rich, if you save this money, you can actually use it to enhance the targeted cash transfers that Sonali was talking about. Third, is agriculture. This has perennially been the, the scourge of the Sri Lankan economy. It's a very low productivity agricultural sector. And what's the reason for that? Well, most 50% of farmers are producing rice and rice is the least productive crop in Sri Lanka. And they get huge subsidies to continue producing rice. 
This is and this is a scandal because it is it is required by law. There's something called the Paddy Lands Act that requires farmers who lease the land to grow rice, to grow paddy. Right. Yet there are many more lucrative crops to be to, to be produced, like vegetables and fruit and things like that. But they're not allowed to do it. So they're not allowed to make a profit. They're not allowed. You know, I remember seeing a case where a farmer was fined seventy five thousand rupees for growing bananas in his plot. Because obviously he thought it was more productive. So I think we need to eliminate that requirement to grow rice. Then uh, fourth, and uh, you know, I, I take a slightly different view from what Ganesh said. You know, Sri Lanka managed its demographic boom. You know, it had a youth bulge and they weren't creating enough jobs. One way they managed it is by migration. There was a huge flood of people going to the Middle East mainly who then went there, made, made a sufficient amount of money and came back. So migration has actually been an integral part of the Sri Lankan economic growth story. So I'm less, less worried about all these this uh, 100,000 migrant, uh, 1 million migra migrants uh, going out of this, uh, this current situation because they're trying to improve their own situation. So Sri Lankans are going to be better off than they would be if they if they stayed in the country, and that's fine. They'll they'll uh, they'll do well, and I think we shouldn't stop them. We should we should uh, uh, facilitate their ability to migrate. And then fifth, if this is not controversial enough, is the is the uh, debt, the domestic debt. Now there's uh, oh, the, the foreign debt. There's a lot of uh, talk that Sri Lanka should not have gone into the private capital markets. Uh, and that's what got, got the country into this uh, debt situation. But I take the opposite view that I think borrowing from international capital market is the best thing Sri Lanka can do because the private capital lenders, the, the bondholders, they only care about making money. They have no geopolitical ambitions or even views on the on the politics. So the, the borrowing from international capital markets forces the government to exercise fiscal discipline and use the money for productive investment. The fact is that the, it's the non-private lenders like China and other official creditors who have other geopolitical and other ambitions that enable the government to borrow from them and use it for unproductive investments. And I think that, you know, Indrajit mentioned that they delayed two years when the, when the international capital market cut them off uh, from capital access to capital market. The government delayed for two years to going to the IMF because they thought they could still get official uh, uh, credit from the Chinese and other uh, official uh, creditors. The, the international capital markets decided two years ago that Sri Lanka was not creditworthy. Uh, that was the time, if, if we didn't have access to the official creditors, that would have been the time to go to the IMF and uh, uh, organize a debt restructuring. So I think international lending provides a, private lending provides a discipline on the local economy that is absolutely necessary for accountability and eventually empowering poor people.
Thanks, uh, Shanta, for those, uh, those excellent contributions. I'm sure the panel will, uh, will will want to come back to that. I will take one question here, uh, and there's also an online question, and then uh, perhaps you go uh, to the panel. Um, here, Rat Ratin, I don't know whether there's a microphone. I think so. That's, that's the microphone coming, yeah. Very, very interesting panel. So I'll make, uh, I would make three observations and ask for your reaction. First is no one spoke about the fiscal situation, and the fiscal situation is interesting. Uh, Sri Lanka's debt situation is not so bad as one might imagine, in the sense that public debt is now close to 100% of GDP. That's not so bad, I mean, given what you've been through. It's okay. It could have been 264. You're not Lebanon at 300. And more important, the foreign proportion of that debt that is foreign financed has actually fallen over the last 10 or 15 years. Domestic debt is what is it is now. There's, you will know governor better than me, but this has happened to seniorage, or you've actually tapped into capital markets or what. The real fiscal crisis seems to be coming on the operational side of the budget, where the government is broke. Uh, fiscal deficits 11.7% of GDP, interest payments accounting for 45% of total spending now, and a number that has been secularly rising since 2011. And uh, the peace dividend not kicking in in the sense that far too much money seems to be still going into general services, police, army, and other such interesting expenditures, which one would have expected to stop with Sri Lanka's you know, recent history ending. So I think the choices before government are stark because you face a current spending problem. But it's not because the debt profile is particularly bad. Uh, the seniorage is probably what is causing inflation. And therefore, but there is very little choice except to tolerate, I think, high inflation in the medium term, because as a consequence of all this from 1990, the size of the Sri Lankan state measured as expenditure to GDP has gone down by 60%. Sri Lanka now has a tiny state. It is 13% of GDP. It used to be 25 or 26% 25 years ago. So there's no more state shrinking that's going to solve the fiscal crisis. It's a smaller state with a higher fiscal deficit. So my question is, therefore, if you apply this fiscal lens to the propositions that you have made, how would these be feasible uh, for the state to employ? If these are not feasible, then one looks at the private sector. And I have three, if Shanta was controversial, try these ones. Uh, questions to ask you. Why not pick the Sri Lankan rupee? But let me put it this way. You have to choose between four nasty people. Between them, the Chinese, the Western donors, the Indians, and ASEAN. So I'll take the Indians as an example because I know that country best. So immediately, both your debt problem and your access to capital markets problem is solved if you were to link the Sri Lankan rupee or peg it to either the Indian rupee or you could choose ASEAN doesn't have a currency. You could peg it to the dollar. That would import undesirable things. India is not doing so badly at the moment. There's reserves of about a trillion dollars. So linking the Sri Lankan rupee temporarily to the Indian rupee would have the great advantage, not just for providing immediate fiscal stability, but also bearing in mind the fact that while North India has prosperity levels of Nepal, Kerala and Tamil Nadu now are far richer than Sri Lanka. They are richer than Indonesia. And therefore, there is a market there for Shanta sort of emigration which would be much more organic and much more integrated. So it would be then possible to have joint ventures and deals integrating with Southern India, with the umbrella of a common currency, of a, of a pegged currency, 
and the security that that offers in terms of fiscal reward. You could do this with India. You could do this with China. When you want to do this with China now, with you, but you could do this also with the ASEAN, possibly if they get their act together. And you could certainly do it with a country in the West. So why would that thinking not be part of sort of policy discourse? Uh, agreeing with Shanta because Sri Lanka is extremely autarkic even today in its approach to economic policy. So if you don't want to be autarkic, you could link up with a country like India that has capital controls, and that protects your ability to be autarkic by making it less autarkic, and then ride that bandwagon to get investment from the most prosperous parts of India, which are 200 kilometers away. The conditionality would probably mean some kind of owning up to the fact that development in Sri Lanka has been uneven. That's my third question. To what extent is Sri Lanka's future to tomorrow and escape from this crisis contingent on reclaiming the north and the east and changing the sort of victor and vanquished relationship to one where you say that no, we have to prioritize these two areas and this is where Sri Lankan growth is going to come going forward. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, those perceptive questions. Um, I've also received three online questions, which I'll, uh, I'll put to you as well, and then I'll go back to the, uh, to the panel. <coughs> Uh, first, an anonymous question. Um, where do you put the chances of domestic debt being restricted? Is it needed? Uh, I think so. Two have already highlighted the issue about domestic debt versus foreign debt. Um, a second question from um, uh, Rushika. Uh, some experts claim that central bank governors' recent decisions, including its raising interest rates, uh, restricting imports, and even declaring default on foreign debt in April, uh, were incorrect. Uh, would there be a more effective approach to stop the economy's downturn? And then the final, uh, the third question that has come through uh, for now is, do you believe that state contingent debt instruments would be a useful tool for managing future debt restructuring? Um, so I propose to go to the, um, to, to the panel. Um, uh, and also maybe you can also address some of the, uh, the suggestions that Bethan and, um, uh, and uh, Shanta made, uh, which are about uh, trade liberalization, uh, need to go much further. They're about uh, diminishing subsidies, um, uh, going for agriculture, allow migration, um, and, and, and uh, permit inflation uh, to happen for some time, um, and uh, and some other issues. Maybe uh, uh, shall I st start on the left? Vinod, um, uh, would, would you be? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take you from a kind of entrepreneur's kind of yeah. angle. So you know, I 100% I agree with with the comments made that we have to open up the economy. Unfortunately, we have special interests like any other country has where who, who, are, who are stopping it. For example, logistics, uh, you know, 51% has to be owned by a local company right now. So, you know, if Maersk wanted to come and set up their own kind of setup, you know, we'd have to open that up. So, I mean, that's one point. Uh, you know, we ourselves have invested in Southern India. We see the growth in Southern India. We are now part of a supply chain making TVs for Sony. So we 100% agree with you that Southern India is the way to go. Again, um, you know, there's a xenophobia in Sri Lanka about India taking over Sri Lanka. So, uh, you know, that has to be overcome. But we have to be eternally grateful for India because, you know, they gave us that 500 to $700 million in May and June when no one else was giving it to us. So I, you know, and yeah, well, it was, well the 500 to 700 was, was important in May and June. Um, yeah, so, so... As I said, I, I think the, I, the, it's going to take a generation, a younger generation, to understand that we need to open up the country and not be scared. Uh, the Indian FTA, as I mentioned earlier, needs to be, you know, the, there was mentioned last week of allowing professionals to come in on the Indian FTA. Now, to get that through is huge, right? 
But, uh, you know, the, we, 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 as I said, from an entrepreneur's point of view, liberalization, opening up the country, getting rid of power tariffs, all this sort of stuff, very important, very important. Thank you very much. It takes a generation to become an open <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, I hope it's faster. Yeah, no, okay. Well, uh, um, X fast is what Sheridan <laughs> mentioned. Um, Gash. So just a lot of very good material from uh, Shanta, Ratin, and the other commentators. Let me just briefly respond to a couple. On Shanta's point, Shanta, I wasn't trying to say that migration was a bad thing. What I was simply saying is there is a short-term skill shortage where all sectors in Sri Lanka are facing uh, exodus of professionals. And this is a big issue, particularly in a story where we have very tight controls on people coming in. Uh, we don't have an Indian-style OCI-type scheme, which would link Sri Lankans uh, uh, who are not uh, dual passport holders and so on, but give them the right to work there and become entrepreneurial. So, uh, you know, migration is very good, uh, but in the short term, it's been devastating across the sectors. Of course, I support the right of people to migrate, but I think we need to also open up the labor market uh, to allow inbound migration, you know, on, on some basis. And the overseas Sri Lankans are the ones, I think, who can come back. In other words, the people who do not have Sri Lankan passports and the young people who can do this in the private sector. So just to clarify, Shata, I'm not against migration in that sense. Um, Ratin, on your point, uh, the state is large in terms of people. You know, we have, what is it, 1.2 million or 2 million people in the public, some big number, right? 1.5 million in the public sector, 400,000 in the military. You know, it's large, right? So, and the big part of the fiscal thing is the salary. And then the interest payments, right, Indrajit? So, so those, yeah. So that's right. So, 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 so the public sector thing. When I said bloated public sector, I meant it in terms of the numbers. And this uh, public sector was such at a time when people like Winod wanted labor to come into their firms, but couldn't find people, right? Um, you know. So, so, so we have not done apart from the demilitarization and issues of that type. Uh, we've not really attempted to break the link. And again, to be controversial in Shanta and your terms, uh, the Swabasha education system uh, is linked to a pathway to people to join the public sector, right? And we disenfranchise or we, we disadvantage people moving towards other employment because they may not have the skills wanted in the private sector. So we have a very complicated nexus between public sector education system, people's aspiration in rural areas, we have to do a lot more if we want to change that. And, and that means, you know, opening up universities and so on. Uh, very briefly, the last point, because I, I would love to hear Indrajit and others. On trade liberalization, I think this is obviously very, very important. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it has to be done in some sequential manner, only because, you know, at the moment, as Indrajit said, uh, the controlling of imports has allowed a low level of economic activity, right? And if we suddenly remove all the import controls, um, without uh, some caution, people will go back to importing all these consumption things, right? You know, we have more Ferraris in Sri Lanka and more Porsches than I've seen in London. And, you know, to me, this is just uh, conspicuous consumption. So we have to make sure there is some uh, approach that looks at the essentials of food, of medicine, of imported items for the private sector as a priority rather than just consumption opening up because somehow we, we're not very good. And then I think we have to bring in the trade agreements. And the last point to Ratin, I, I always felt um, you trade with your geography, as Paul Krugman reminded us many years ago, and I think that's still very valid. And Sri Lanka has been very schizophrenic about the India trade relationship. And purely in economic terms, the gains would be greater if you could link Sri Lanka to India, not just through a trade agreement, which I think is useful, but also physical connectivity. 
Uh, and that means, you know, opening up the airport in the north. It means the ferry service. It means a highway between the north and the rest of the country. So you get the spillover benefits, right? Uh, it means upgrading the ports in Trincomalee and so on. So I think we need to think in a much more integrated manner, uh, instead of which we have gone to China, which is a very distant country, uh, and really doesn't see us as a manufacturing center. You know, there's hardly any Chinese manufacturing in Sri Lanka, which is interesting. They'll come to us for 6% interest rates in Hambantota port, but they're not going to come and invest in manufacturing or, or much. So that's the dilemma we have to face, and that's where the geopolitics comes in. Uh, and I think we have to address this uh, head on if we want to uh, do much better. Um, thank you. Yeah. So leaning more towards uh, India. Um, Sonali, I don't know whether you can um, hear us and whether you would like to come in on some of the, uh, some of the points. Over to you. Um, yeah, I will just uh, reiterate uh, what Shanta said about political capture. And I think in all these discussions, it's very, very important to look at the reality of Sri Lanka and the kind of political capture and the lack of political accountability, you know, and inclusivity we have in this country, which is why we've kind of ended up with this kind of, you know, economic collapse in the first place is that we've had, you know, massive kind of public overinvestment. We've had huge amount of corruption, rent-seeking. And we've also had, in terms of trade liberalization, I said we've had this anti-export bias in the country, which is a function of the nature of the political interests in the country who push for the kind of, you know, inward-looking uh, a policy focus. So, I mean, I think political capture, you know, what do we do about it? It's kind of very, I, I don't know. But that is a factor that's led to this kind of economic uh, crisis and economic policy uh, we're in right now. And, um, you know, I can't see it going anyplace good right now. How do we bring in the voices of those who are protesting and dissenting and the voice of Dargalea, as Shanta said? You know, we've the currently what's happening is the reaction has been kind of more repression rather than kind of opening up. We've had these dreadful things like this rehabilitation bill proposed and so on, which is further pushing, you know, pushing people back rather than bringing people into a development discourse. And I think that's really important to have a frank conversation, you know, nationally about, you know, how people are being harmed in this economy. What is the way out? You know, we don't have that consensus. And I think that's what, you know, in my view, we need to, you know, make some progress on that. Thank you very much, Anali. Um, Sharon. Yeah, um, I think um, just some uh, responses to some of the comments. No? Uh, for example, on the foreign debt on why going to the international uh, market uh, rather than the official lending. So I think, of course, uh, there's some um, very controversial, like almost like a debt diplomacy that's happening when, time, when this uh, shocks happen. But I think uh, the private uh, sector is also very... Uh, you know, unstable in times of shock. They basically follow like the interest rates from advanced economies, and that's why in times of shock, you're more resilient if your if your lending comes from concessional terms like IMF, World Bank, or ADB, for for example. So the the key really is to have a right composition, I would say. And in the long term, what helps many Southeast Asian countries is that they develop their own local uh, currency markets, and that will you know address some of the currency mismatch during sharp uh, depreciation appreciation of the exchange rate. Um, I think. Um, yeah, there's a, some um, advantage on like pegging the Sri Lankan rupee, but that's very also needs lots of 
thinking around it. There's advantages, disadvantages. Um, you'll see in many African countries, Frangopona countries, they have modest inflation. Well, everybody's growing up to inflation, but not as fast as those that have their own central bank. And it's because it's peg. But the secret to any peg exchange rate is that you have to have a large reserve, like substantial reserves to support it. So, and Sri Lanka is an importing country, and it might be difficult to achieve that in that context. Um, and then on the online question on FX controls, if it's wrong or right, well, of course, uh, Indrajit might be able to say it better. And the, but the key is to central bank communication. They have to say it's temporary so that it not everybody will expect that it's permanent. And then in between, address the shock. Like it's interesting when we're working with Bangladesh during the pandemic. FX is not their problem because they incentivize remittances, large remittances like a certain percentage if you remit. And the, with remittances, it's largely informal. It may not have actually increased the volume, but it all went through official channels that beef up the foreign reserves. So just thinking of like the channels while you have this temporary capital controls, then that might work. And also some you know, agreement with export companies if they can direct their export receipts, receipts to the central bank if it can help building up those buffers. So, yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll yeah. answer those two. Okay, very good points. Uh, Indrid. Uh, thank you. I, I mean, there are lots of stuff. I must say, very rich discussion. If I can take Dr. Roy's points, if I may, on, on the fiscal as to how bad it is, you know, is it, does it... Uh, uh, do we make it sound worse than it really is? A couple of things. One is that there was, a, um, in terms of the external debt dynamics, uh, when we graduated around 2010, there was a significant change in the composition of the external debt. You know, Sri Lanka was a donor darling. We were the second country after Chile to liberalize our economy of those countries that went down the Dujis route. So the traditional donors were very keen to show good development outcomes in a country with a liberal polity and a liberal economy. So we got extremely generous levels of foreign aid. And 60-65% of it was from IDA and the Asian Development Fund. So we had never, never money. You know, we're talking about 10-year grades, 40-50 year maturity, less than 1% uh, administration charge. So then we start to graduate and we have to then wean ourselves away from uh, that kind of money. And we get in, into the embrace of the rating agencies and international sovereign bonds. And that changed the dynamic because we kept taking that money, but that money was put into non-tradables. We didn't. Yeah, exactly. So the non-tradables, you know, the tradable sector declined from about 60-70% down to about 40%. You know, so the combination of the change in the composition of the external debt and that borrowed money being put into non-tradables, which would earn or save foreign exchange, that is, you know, that's part of this narrative that brought us here. So that, unless we can get, you know, get exports going, that's the, that's the bottom line. Uh, then, you know, our, our options uh, uh, improve. Um, the second thing is on, on India. You know, I see basically with a bit of good fortune uh, that one could replicate in South Asia what happened in East and Southeast Asia 
when first Japan and then China took off. You know, all the countries, the regional countries, plugged into those supply chains and transformed their economies. Now, I've seen Mr. Modi talk about India becoming a supply chain, global supply chain hub. Now, if, if that happens, or at least if India moves towards that, and we are saying, that we are, I think most uh, commentators are agreed that India, India, you know, in the next decade, there's going to be pretty rapid growth in India. Uh, and so the neighborhood first policy, uh, you know, higher growth in India than any, any large economy uh, in the world. And the other thing is, you know, we've had proximity to India forever, right? But the transaction cost of doing business across the border was very high because infrastructure was so poor in both countries. Now, the, the, you know, the airports are improving, the ports are improving, uh, you know, uh, the roads are improving. So, you know, this whole kind of supply chain story, uh, plugging into Indian supply chain that you were talking about, and as uh, uh, Ganeshan has written extensively on this, becomes possible. This really now becomes possible. But there has to be a mindset change in terms of our attitude to India. Uh, the, the, the threat we feel from India, there has to be trust. To be fair, India has also behaved in a way that has undermined trust. So this is a two-way thing. So both countries basically need to build trust. And if there is trust, I think for Sri Lanka, as I said, with this neighborhood policy, the potential of India uh, and, and all these supply chains which seem to be developing in India, I think there's a real, real opportunity for Sri Lanka. Uh, uh, the, 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 the linking the currency, I think you got it right there. We have a persistent current account deficit essentially, you know, and, and we have real challenge in building our reserves. Uh, and we, we have to borrow to build our reserves. Uh, and, and so the currency is constantly under pressure. And unless one is able to basically, again, it comes down to the, the kind of export transformation narrative. If we're able to do that, if and we were able to drive our growth through, through the surplus in the current account, which is what the East and Southeast Asians have done. They've driven their growth with a surplus in the current account. We have driven our growth with a deficit in the budget. That, that's, how we, that's how we drive our growth. If you correlate the size of the budget deficit to growth in Sri Lanka, you see a very, very strong correlation. You know, So that's why you have these repeating cycles of our 16 IMF programs. Uh, so I think it, it is something which could become possible but first, we would need, I think, to you know, get out of this twin deficit situation and, and have stability, particularly in terms of the current account uh, of the, the, the balance of payments. Um, until then, it will be ch challenging, I think. Thank you, Inuit. Um We'll take one or two questions, um, and, uh, and then we'll go to the panel for a final, uh, uh, final remark. Um, so, uh, gentlemen there. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, for wonderful explanations on the matter concerning Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm on in the educational field, and um, I find uh, it might uh, relevant to the central bank. Uh, so you say there are quite a lot of Sri Lankans coming to the schools, colleges over here, still paying in foreign currencies. And I don't understand how this happens uh, in a country like Sri Lanka, uh, officially or unofficially, the payments are made to the British or Australian or American universities. So there is a big loop on the system somewhere. This money goes out, which is not tapped in. 
The second thing is I always, um, I mean, when I listen to the panel's question, I feel like uh, why can't we make Sri Lanka a public limited company and put it into FTSE and get something out if we talk in a very simple terms uh, to get finance and kind of the uh, things that we are trying to achieve for the betterment of country in a very simple layman's term. I'm sure there will be various other ways that we can work it out. And uh, I would like to just say thank you very much for the uh, wonderful explanations, which uh, benefit quite a lot. Thank you. Gentlemen on the left there, could you also introduce yourself? I want to, my, my name is Dr. Salva. I'm a retired medical doctor, uh, has an interest in life, generally in life, okay? Now, the, my question is that I read a recent, not recently, a few years ago, book written by uh, Professor Rahuram Rajan, who was a central banker in India, now he's a professor of finance in Chicago, business school, he wrote a book, very simple concept, three pillars to be a successful, I'm sure some of you all would have read, three pillars for a successful society or country. One is a state, second is markets or private sector, third is the community. Now, in Sri Lanka, as I understand, I've been there several times apart from the last two years, uh, everything politicized. They have infiltrated even the private sector, non-existent community sector there. So, like the other professor was saying, unless you get the people empowered, these changes, it will be at the top. And what's going to happen very soon, I don't know, whenever it is, the elections are held, some of the existing players have wanted to come back, at least according to the news media. Even the new people, like I was in a small meeting with some friends, they themselves don't know where they want to go. It's all very vague. There's no solid, this is what we're going to do. We know that we can't do everything straight away, but in stage by stage. So is there any, I don't know, you all are learned, uh, uh, presenters, Sri Lanka is famous for agreeing to things, sign on the dotted lines. They don't implement anything, very partially. So I would rather like to the panel's opinion on that. Thank you. And finally, here, gentlemen, here on the left front. Hi, thank you. <clears throat> Uh, it's Amal Abe Wardana. I serve as the secretary to the all-party parliamentary group on Sri Lanka here. Um, uh, just a very quick question, actually, in picking up from what Shanta asked. If I could ask uh, all the panelists, can, <clears throat> can Sri Lanka really come out of this crisis without accountability? That's a very good, uh, uh, good question, a targeted question and short. Um, let me just mention briefly also the, um, the online questions that come in, and I'll come, go to the panelists. Um, there's one question from uh, Jeva. Uh, it says, uh, what proportion of the export industry's earnings are remitted back to Sri Lanka? Um, do we have that data? And is there any possibility of China taking a haircut? Um, and, uh, <laughs> it's two, two different questions there. Uh, uh, finally... Uh, what is the one key policy change you would like to see post-IMF approval? Um, 
that perhaps is a good pack to uh, to end the um, uh, the discussions and ask the, the, the panelists for a very short final uh, final contribution, uh, maybe just thirty seconds because we're we're, we're reaching uh, two thirty. So I think there are two issues, isn't, aren't there? That 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 are major issues. One is to ensure uh, that this deal gets done, uh, and we've had all sorts of uh, this IMF deal gets approved that uh, um, that we get beyond. The, uh, the, the first few uh, few weeks, few months, um, um, and the question is sort of how how this can be done. But then the second is post IMF approval, post once that is in place, um, uh, what needs to be done? And we've discussed um, a number of issues here. So we we, dis we discussed political capture. Uh, we we discussed it takes a, a generation. Um, we, we discussed uh, can Sri Lanka get out of this without accountability? So these are all long term issues. Uh, and we know that, uh, uh, perhaps. Um, so then the question is, what is the one single thing that you say uh, could be done now to set, uh, set Sri Lanka off on the, on the right path? Um, let me just, uh, again, start with, um, uh, on, on the left-hand side, uh, Vinod, with you. Uh, what is the one thing that you so, would like so to I, 30 I, seconds. Yeah, for, for, uh, for me, I think the SOE sector, so the CEB, uh, the... the um, Sri Lankan Airlines and, and the petroleum company. If we can structurally reform these three companies, it'll go a long way in, 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 in solving a lot of the kind of debt issues and economic issues that we have. In terms of the question on the political side, you know, the whole structure of the political system has to change. So, you know, proportional representation, all that sort of stuff for, for people to get involved. And that's going to be hard. Uh, you know, it's going to be hard to do, but I, I think there is a movement towards that. So I, I hope, you know, we do see something towards that. But if for the younger people to get involved, we need to get proportional representation. Okay, thank you. As a we sector. Um, so I think we need a, a plan uh, for the next five years to show how we get the IMF program and things done, plus the longer term reforms and the political reforms. So without that, and we have to get a consensus across the society that this plan is what we're going to stick to. Okay, have a plan. Uh, Sonali. Hi, yes, I would say the plan should has to include uh, poverty reduction and really to take stock of the extent to which poverty has increased, how do we inc increase transfers to the new poor, and do we need any kind of redistribution to go with that, and so on. So I think that should be really the central focus of any plan together with uh, exporting and so on. Hans plan. Uh, Sharon? I think uh, for me, political ownership, commitment, and accountability, because it improves fiscal balance, fiscal spending, and also uh, unblock financial flows to the economy. So it's one of the first steps that should be taken. Okay, thank you. And Idris, may, may I just respond to one quick question sure. there? Well, because education, people are not doing anything wrong. It was until recently, it was permissible to remit money for education. So that, 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 that's okay. Uh, the other thing is, um, on, I, I must say we have to get through the next 12, 18 months, you know, before we have grand design for the future. Because the next 12, 18 months can be torrid if, if we don't get it right. So the first thing is you, you've got to get the fiscal side organized. You know, we've had only three years since 1954 where there has been a surplus, a primary surplus in the budget. Only three years since 1954. So you can see how the debt problem has been building up. So that's so the budget has to be put right. There's revenue enhancement, fiscal consolidation, the most crucial thing. 
The second thing is, the, as I said at the beginning, um, macroeconomic stress has been the main cause of our regression. And the fiscal performance or the sub-performance or the sub-optimal fiscal performance, the impact of that has been amplified by fiscal forbearance in monetary policy. So you have to make the central bank more independent. The new central bank act has to come in and give greater autonomy to the central bank because we've seen what happened, what the central bank did in the last couple of years. You cannot, you cannot allow that to happen again. That's the second thing. And the third thing, I think, is to have a robust and well-targeted social uh, safety net. Because without that, nothing is, I don't think we'll be able to get anything done. We won't, we won't get the traction to do any of the reforms unless the social safety net uh, is built up sufficiently. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, so I suppose we concluded uh, saying that um, we need a, a plan for the, the coming 12 to 18 months, um, which does need to include uh, attention to the fiscal side, uh, central bank autonomy, and needs attention to, uh, to a social safety net. Um, and uh, we then also need a plan for the coming five years, um, and uh, that needs to also include uh, a, a social safety net. Um, we need to think about political accountability and also dealing with uh, um, the SOEs, um, uh, state-owned enterprises. And there were a lot of uh, other issues that I think um, uh, we, we discussed. So uh, a very rich discussion. And tradables and non-tradables. And perhaps putting steps on the trade liberalization route uh, one step at a time. Um, I think um, uh, there are options, right? So there are um, uh, there's reason for optimism uh, as well. Um, there's there's a scope for hope, and uh, let's end on that note. That we hopefully we want to continue uh, sort of discussing these these issues, and that perhaps uh, sort of uh, uh, in the new year when perhaps the new the new deal um, uh, or the deal is done, um, then there needs to be more attention uh, to to this this uh, this shorter and longer term plan. And that needs to then focus on attention, focus its attention on the issues that we discussed. So uh, let me just uh, thank um, uh, the audience for coming and also the online uh, audience for questions. But, uh, but let me also thank all the, the fantastic panelists for the fantastic contributions. And thank you for, uh, uh, for uh, being here at ODI. And make sure you, uh, you visit our website uh, soon to uh, download the recording and you can look, uh, look back at um, what everybody said uh, in greater detail. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.